Hasn't God been faithful to us? Just in our own lifetime, you can see it in so many ways, but this building has been here for just over 50 years, but the people who have been meeting as TCM have been here for a lot longer than that. In fact, some of you have had grandfathers, grandparents who were part of the congregation. God's been faithful to put this church in this city for hundreds of years. And generation after generation has passed on to the next. God is faithful. Trust him. And so we get that privilege to tell the next generation, God is faithful. Trust him. Keep trusting him. So we're going to do that today. We're going to go to God's word. We're going to understand how he is faithful and how we, based on his faithfulness, can be faithful to him. So open up your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 5 through 7 today. And if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, the title of the sermon is called Humble Yourself, right out of the text. Now, if you don't have a a Bible, you can take one of those P Bibles. It's on page 1076. And we always want to offer to anyone who doesn't have an English Bible, come to the Connect Corner. We'll give you one, and one of our hosts there has one for you. And also, we're happy to show you how, how do you read the Bible? How do you study it? How do you apply it to your life? So let us know if we can help you in that way. And as we get going here, we definitely need God's help, so let's pray and ask him for that, shall we? Oh, Father, you are such a, a good and glorious God. And one truth you've revealed to us in your word is that you are sovereign over all creation. You reign over everything, all the events in our lives. You reign in power, you reign in wisdom, you reign in compassion. You are worthy of all honor and praise as we've sung and thought about this morning. And for your children, you're also the God of all comfort, the God of hope. I'm so thankful we can know you in that way. The fact, though, Lord, is that oftentimes the things that discourage us, the darkness in this world is more intimidating to us, and we're more impressed by that than we are by your greatness and by your bright light that shines into the darkness, destroying it. So, Father, please forgive us when we doubt your goodness. Please forgive us when we forget to come to you for help. Please forgive us for our prayerlessness. And we ask, Father, that today you might increase our faith. Your Holy Spirit might work among us to cause us to cling to Christ, to stay close to the cross, to be people who gladly follow our Savior to the outside of the city, even if that means ridicule and scorn and persecution. We'd rather stay with Christ than have all the esteem and the praise and the riches of this world. Please, Father, work that desire into us and give us the confidence that we can walk in this way that will please you today and throughout this week. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. One thing I love that many of you have heard me talk about is athletics. And so a particularly bright moment for me was watching in 2009 when a tall Jamaican shattered the world record. Not just in the 100 meters, but the half-lap 200-meter race, destroying the record. And many people who saw him storm on to that scene down that track remembered him for one year before when he won the Olympic finals, a gold medal, but they remembered him for one particular thing. Before he crossed the finish line, he began pounding his chest in celebration. Well, many people were offended by this. They said, the Olympics is a place for sportsmanship, not showmanship. Now, Usain Bolt went on to win eight Olympic titles. He won 11 championship gold medals. 
a noteworthy career, but what people remember about Usain Bolt in particular is his larger-than-life personality. He, he took this idea of being a showman, and it drew, drew people in. People who never watched athletics would start watching because they knew he was going to be in the race. And people still loved his lightning pose. They loved to watch him run. They loved to hear the cocky way he would talk. But not everyone loved it, especially those whom he beat, because they could never one-up him. It's just common in sports that that Usain Bolt attitude, that boasting is, is almost essential to be in sports. Now, there are some sports that are a bit more mellow and low-key, but they have their ways of, of grandstanding anyway. It's just part of the game. But one thing that you never see celebrated and delighted in is that humble player, do you? You never see people bragging about their teammate because that star player, he cleaned up all the locker room and he washed all of our jerseys. We can't outserve him. You never hear people talking about that because what the world eats up is that big bragging spirit. Now, we all tend to admire humility, but very few of us love to be humble, do we? Yet, think about this. In God's kingdom, humility is the very thing that God honors the most. It seems almost paradoxical that the more humble you are, the more honored you will be in God's kingdom, but that is what he values. Now, if you're like me and most Christians and you struggle to love and cultivate humility in your life, then our text today has great help for us. We're going to read it, and as we do, I just invite you, stand with me and give your full attention to God's word because this is Holy Scripture. In in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7, it reads, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. The word of the Lord, it says, is more desirable than gold, and it's more delightful to your soul than fine honey, so welcome it today. You may be seated. So we have a text here, and in that text there's one big idea, and I just want to share that. This is how I would put it. Maybe you have a different one, a different way to say it. But in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, it requires humility in three areas. And it shows us this so that you will know God's blessing. As you strive to imitate this, you'll know God's blessing in a unique way, and what a blessing it is. So here's the first area. Be subject to your shepherds. So it's, it's talking to the young people. That's the area. Young people, be subject to your shepherds. That's how you humble yourself. That's in the first part of verse 5. Secondly, the second area is for all of us, all Christians. It's clothe yourself toward Christians, the second half of verse 5. The third area where we are to be humble is humble yourself under God's hand. That's verses 6 and 7. So God is requiring humility in all these areas, and they're really areas of church life. This is significant because Peter's writing to people who are feeling oppression. They're feeling severe persecution. And you think they need some encouragement, like God loves you. God cares about you. And that is in the letter, but he's saying, while that is going on, stay true to this because 
Where you'll find God's help and blessing isn't by withdrawing, it's by staying the course, doing the things that God wants you to do. You will know God's blessings as you endure that fiery persecution or trial. So let's start looking at this first place where humility is required, and it's being subject to your shepherds. Look back at verse 5. That first part says, In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So he had just talked about elders in verses 1 through 4, and he was saying these elders, in in a way, they, they have to be humble. They have to realize they're going to answer to God for how they care for the flock. And there is a double judgment for those who teach. No one wants to go around bragging how good of a shepherd they are because every biblical shepherd is very much aware of his deficiencies, his failures, his sins, the way he lets down the sheep. He's very much aware of how much more he would love to do and want to do, but his own flesh gets in the way. If you want to learn to be humble, step into a position of leadership and you'll find quickly it's not all the the dream position it may seem to be. So in in a similar way to the elders that need to be humble, the younger people need to be humble as well. But this word, in the same way or likewise, it's actually a literary word that means, and now I want to talk to the next group. I've spoken to the elders. The next group are the young people, the younger ones. Now, this could be speaking to all younger Christians, those who are new to the faith. It could be speaking to younger Christians just in age. But the word is actually pointing specifically to the young men, as in there's something specific that God wants the young men to remember. Now, there's so many good things about young men. They, they tend to charge ahead with boundless energy. They love new ideas. They, they bring fresh thinking into places. Their enthusiasm reminds older saints to maintain a zeal for the Lord. And yet with youth, there comes difficulties, doesn't it? Those very strengths become weaknesses. Young men can be aggressive. They can think highly of their own wisdom. They, they tend to act before thinking things through. Their love of innovation can cause them to reject the very tradition on which we build a stable ministry. Their zeal oftentimes lacks patience with people. Many times their desire for influence puts them into leadership and seeking out positions of influence before their character can sustain the weight of that responsibility. Now, young women, young men here, the church needs you. We love you. In fact, that Peter is writing to this group in particular assumes that the church has these people active in the church. Now, how you present yourself, how you use your gifts will vary from person to person, but can I just give you some counsel, young people? Take the next 10 to 15 years. Commit yourself to this one task. Letting God harness your energy by being submissive to your elders. Let them take the lead. If you have a great idea, share it with the leadership. But if they say to you, no, not now, then say, okay. Take the time to sit at the feet of older saints and learn from them. Learn in this decade how to be joyfully subjective to the ones that God has put in care over your soul. 
God put these people at this time to care for you for a reason. You need them and they need you as well. Now, when he says to the young people, subject yourselves or be in subjection, that verb tense is actually a very urgent tense. It means this is your top priority. Pay attention to this right now. How are you doing in this area? It it means to voluntarily put yourself under the leadership and authority of somebody else. Give yourself over to their vision and their leaderships. Because, again, these overseers, these shepherds are here to help you. And God knows far better than you do what you need. Trust God with those imperfect, stuck-in-their-ways, old-fashioned leaders. What does God have you through them? Just consider Jesus for a moment. Twelve years old, he's a young man. He uh, was going back from the temple with his parents. And the scriptures say that he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. Jesus was submissive to his parents. In the same way, younger people, you should be submissive to the leaders in your life as well. Those that we read about in verses 1 through 4 last week. Jesus voluntarily submitted to the ones that he himself had created with his power, that by the power of his word he was upholding, and he, he still willingly submitted to their leadership. And it brought his mother joy. She treasured this in her heart. It sounds an awful lot like Hebrews 13, verse 17, talking to the whole church, but young people as well. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. There are many gifted young Christians who make a shipwreck of their faith because they never learn to submit to authority. A tragic story in my life is one young leader that I served alongside, gifted communicator, it's a charismatic leader, and he, he desired to plant his own church one day. And then he finally had the opportunity. He moved across the country. He started a church, and it grew quickly because of his ability to teach and his charisma. But in his desire to be innovative and in his desire to reject biblical accountability, he started aligning himself with new and innovative voices. And he eventually embraced a social justice gospel, which is a corruption of the true gospel. He aligned himself with these leaders and began to learn from them. And his gospel and his theology became unrecognizable to biblical Christianity. And it ended up corrupting his faith. I prayed for him upon occasion, and I, I looked him up the other day, and there was his self-named website, and no longer is he a pastor. He describes himself as author, coach, wine educator, creative. This friend traded in a shepherd's staff for the innovative title that he wears now. He talks about he writes, and he speaks, and he travels. You might find him leading tours around wine country in the world, giving talks about the history of wine I thought, what happened? It's because looking back, he always chafed against the authority that God had put in his life. And he always knew he could do it better. And now he has made a shipwreck of his life. Not unlike Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 when Paul says, he was in love with the present world and so he has deserted me. Young people, watch your life carefully. Align yourself with godly people knowing they will be imperfect. 
So being subject to the elders is, is a means by which you will receive God's blessing. So what does a subjection look like practically? We can find examples in Scripture. There's 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12 that gives us a picture. He writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and be at peace among yourselves. Do you respect the elders? Do you highly esteem them for what they do? Do you value their work when they take care of us in prayer and things you don't see? Because when you do, it says peace will thrive among us. You are crucial to the peace of this church and how you respond to these elders. So younger people who make up the church, God has a special word for you. And as you do this, as you grow in humility, you'll receive God's blessing. There's a second area. It's the second part of verse 5. It's clothe yourself toward Christians. Now look, at this is toward the church. He goes on to say, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now this is for all church members. It's obvious. It says all of you towards one another. It's mutual. In other words, no one gets a pass. No one can go on holiday. It's all the time and every one of us to the other. We are to all clothe ourselves with humility. Isn't that an interesting expression, to clothe yourself with humility? I'm sure many of you thought about what you'd wear today. That's a good thing. But did you wake up thinking, how can I put on humility today? Well, I didn't even think that out. I'm teaching on this passage. But this comes from an expression in Peter's day, and it came out of the, the role of slaves, and as slaves would serve, certain roles were dirtier, and it could get their clothing pretty grimy. And so they would put an apron on themselves and tie it tightly around their body so that they would avoid getting filthy. And so this idea of putting on an apron became a way of saying, that is a humble person, because they did the tasks that no one else would do. It was only for the lowest of the low. And so when he says, clothe yourselves, he's saying, firmly tie the apron of humility around yourself. So tight. It's like a Gordian knot. No one can get it off. And you keep it on at all times. There's a, a reality that other people, free men, would do low-level work too, but they have a different kind of apron. It was distinguished from the slave's apron. And in this expression, Peter's saying, take this lowest apron that you can find and put it on yourself. The funny thing about putting on humility is there's no way to put it on that makes you look more distinguished than somewhere else. There's no more respectable way of putting on humility. You, you're saying, I am the lowest of the low. I don't deserve to even put on this apron because in my flesh and my sinful state, I don't deserve God's favor that would grant me the grace to even put on humility. The fact is, humility is a one-size-fits-all garment for the entire church. It can fit the smallest to the largest person, the oldest to the youngest, male or female. And you know what? It doesn't look good on anyone. All of us feel kind of embarrassed to be putting it on. But God looks on and says, that's my daughter. That's my son because they look like my son, Jesus Christ. They shine him out when they tie that apron on. I'm so proud of my humble child. Now, you, you can't tie on humility when your hands are occupied accumulating applause for yourself. 
You can't tie on humility when you're trying to build your own kingdom, trying to look good for other people. The point is that you would never leave your house without clothing on. You should never get up in the morning without ensuring you've put on humility and tied it so tight, nothing can get it off. Some of you will remember the long-running program Undercover Boss. It was really successful. They would take a a successful boss, executive of a company, and that person would take on a disguise, look like a regular person. They would take on a different name and make up a backstory, and they would go work in an entry-level position in their company somewhere. And no one would know who they were. And as the television rolled, the television producers promised, we won't make you look like a fool or your company, but we will also not edit dramatically to make you look better than you are. And so as it went on, these bosses would get to know the the lowest of the low in their company. And after a week of doing this, they would go back to their headquarters, and they would call up a few of these employees that they had met to honor them, to give them a pay raise, a promotion, and people loved it. But friend, you know what? When we take on the role of the undercover boss, we never go back to headquarters. We never assume our position of power again. We stay in the lowest position for our life. As Peter wrote this, he surely remembered the final night with Jesus. You're probably thinking of it as well. In John 13, it sets the stage. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And then in verse 4, it says that after that dinner, Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel that was wrapped around him. My dog has to run out to the far side of the garden to do her business, and then she runs back in. It's not very far, but her paws get filthy. We we can't let her back into the house just after that short run until we've wiped off her paws, and our towel is filthy dirty. The disciples' feet were like that. They would walk through fields. There were animal remains there. And here's Jesus, their Lord and Savior. He tied the slave's apron around himself and he got down to wash their feet. If it's not too good for him, what about us? Let Christ be our example. But what's amazing is Jesus didn't do this begrudgingly. He didn't do this to say, I'm just going to teach them a lesson. He loved to do it. In verse 1 of John 13, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And how did he show his love? By doing this. You see, without love, 1 Corinthians 13 says that trying on the the slave's apron is, is meaningless. It's as worthless and annoying as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love, you're merely acting humble, and it'll gain you nothing. Quite an example to follow and. I hope as you look to Christ, the longing to be like him will stir in you the same desire. We we can see this being unpacked, Philippians 2, looking to Christ again, verses 3 and 5. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. To consider others is to count them, is to say, I'm going to count all the ways that they're better than I am, all the things that they do better than me. And even if I find very few, I'm going to treat them As a VIP in my life, the odd thing that happens as you do that is you start to actually value that person more. The one who you annoy, who annoys you at church, 
The one who you think, oh, why don't they get on board of things? If you start treating them in this way, there's a change that happens in you. And yet, why do so few of us aspire to be humble if it was good for our Savior? It's so true. We love humility as an idea, but none of us love to be humble. Yet, Christ has the power by the Holy Spirit to change you, not just to imitate him, but to love to imitate him as well. So the next time that someone mistreats you, thank them. Why would you thank them? Because they're exposing pride. If you find that your anger's rising up, how dare you say that to me? You could say, oh no, there's pride rising up. And you could say, thank you for exposing this pride in me. The reality is, if they knew how bad you actually are, if they knew all the depth of the sin that was in your heart, they probably wouldn't even talk to you at all. You know yourself. So if someone says things that seem unfair, just realize, oh no, it's not even as bad as you think, but thanks for the compliment. (laughs) And then we can grow. Instead of warring against them, we can war against the pride that gets offended by that treatment. Knowing this should cause us to be motivated to overcome our pride because pride is so dangerous. And so Peter, he frightens us and then he woos us. And so in verse 5, he starts out, it's easier to bold letters or capital letters. He's quoting from the Old Testament in Proverbs 3.34. And first he says to, to warn you, to scare you, God resists the proud. The proud, they think they're superior to others. They think they should get special grace and excuses. And they despise and dismiss all who fall short of their own image of themselves, which is actually way higher than they are. But when God resists it, it means he hates it. He wages war against it. Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 16. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Do you know what leads the list? Haughty eyes, a proud person. Proverbs 8, verse 13. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. The archangel Lucifer, beautiful, incredible creation, began to look at himself and grow in pride. In fact, Isaiah 14, 14 tells us his thoughts. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Pride is satanic. You should want nothing to do with it. God hates pride because it led humanity to fall into sin that brought destruction, eternal death. It brought pain and suffering into this world. But ultimately, God hates pride because he's holy and he hates sin. He's deeply offended by it, and it stirs up his righteous anger. So he opposes the proud like a mighty warrior who's arrayed for battle. Pride and the proud are his enemies. He will go to war against them. Not just one time, he's persistently and continually against pride. Nothing will divert God from his course of action except repentance of our pride and faith in Jesus Christ. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. By faith, we can grow in humility and eliminate pride. So do you hate pride like God does? Are you eagerly seeking to eradicate and wage war on the pride in your own heart? 
we, the problem is we love sin. We love our pride. We love thinking much about ourselves. We love it when people applaud us. But dwell on the consequences for sin. Dwell on what it means for God to be opposed to that and ask yourself, do I really want that? Is that where I want to live? And pray. Pray for those around you. Pray for yourself that God would stir up in you a hatred of pride as well and a determination to put it to death. So God uses fear, rightfully so, but he also woos us. Listen to how he woos us, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is God's favor. You cannot earn it. You can't do things that God says, oh, I like that. I'm going to give you a little bit of extra. It's, it's unmerited, and it, grace alone is what saves us through faith. It saves us from judgment for our sins. It comes through Jesus Christ for what he's done on your behalf. It has nothing to do with your works. That's a saving grace. The grace here is a sanctifying grace. It's an ongoing benefit to us. It's a kind of grace that strengthens you to follow God's ways. And God generously gives this grace to the humble. The humble had the same attitude of John the Baptist. In John 3.30, he said, He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. It's a lifelong endeavor. The humble have room for grace because they're emptying of themselves. Are you full of yourself today? Are you thinking highly of yourself because there's not going to be room for grace in your heart? Those who are humble know that they are lowly. They know they're unworthy, and they gladly acknowledge their dependency on God. They gladly get help from other people. They ask those around them to pray for them. They, they don't feel embarrassed about it because they, they know, if you know how low I was, you would be embarrassed, but I, God accepts me still. He calls me his own as I am. And you start depending and resting in God's all-sufficiency so that other people's opinions don't matter. There's a remarkable and almost unbelievable truth in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. What a place that must be. Do you think anyone can visit, let alone dwell there? Listen to this. He continues, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly to revive the heart of the contrite. Ultimately, God's favor for the humble means an intimate relationship with him. It means you will be with God forever. Now, I just want to warn you that pride isn't just making too much of yourself. There's a a sneaky pride, a deceptive pride. It's a pride that actually thinks of yourself too much. It masquerades as self-pity. It masquerades as a low self-esteem. It says, poor me. It says, I'm not good enough. But actually, the reason why this is pride because it's absorbed with the self. All the thoughts of this person are, are absorbing or orbiting around the self. This is a treacherous deceptive thing even for that person because you don't feel you're great, but actually you're absorbed with yourself. The curious start thinking about how great Christ is. Look to him who accepts and comes after the lepers. He comes after the prostitutes. He comes after the lowly and he gives them grace. He said, I've not come for those who are well. I've come for those who are sick. And so if you are feeling low, perfect. Christ is for you today. Take your eyes off yourself and look to him. 
So if you want God's blessing of grace, clothe yourself toward other Christians with humility. Tie that slave's apron on so tight, nothing will get it off. There's one more area of Christian life, the church life that requires humility. So first of all, we saw it in our relationship to shepherds. We've seen it in our relationship to other Christians. And now the third one is our relationship to God. So humble yourself under God's hand. It's the last two verses. Look at it. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. He cares about you. Let me just say it one more time. He, the high and lofty one, who dwells in heaven, who is holy and mighty, who none can compare to, he is without end, he's perfect, he cares for you, dear beloved Christian. Does that stir something in your soul? Maybe you've you're been so jaded by life that even that's hard to grasp, but I hope that we can get to the bottom of it. But remember, because God opposes the proud, because he gives the grace to the humble, because that's true, therefore, humble yourself. Seek to do that because you'll get God's favor. Now, as with all the other commands we've looked at, this is an urgent one. It, it means scrap everything on your agenda for today. Prioritize this. In fact, don't go to number two on your diary until you've spent time working on this. It's supposed to be immediate action. Humble yourself. Otherwise, God will humble you, dear beloved Christian. To humble yourself means to order yourself under what his hand has given you. Now, these hard situations you go through, remember, they're planned by your loving and wise Heavenly Father. They're to cause you to trust him and to obey him more fully. But also they, they expose sin so that you can repent of that and, and grow in Christ's likeness. But always remember that God's hand is far mightier than the trials that you're facing or the persecutors that come against you. No weapon that formed against you will stand when God's hand is on you. So one reason God's mighty hand works is to help you trust that he actually has power over the darkest situations. Think about Moses. God sends him to talk to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he says, Pharaoh, let God's people go. But when he said that, things just got worse. As if they weren't bad enough, they get worse. And, and then things happen exactly as God said. The more resistance from Pharaoh, the more the Israelites would see God's glory. Then it led to God being glorified in the world. Exodus 9, 13 says, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send my plagues on all of you, yourself, and your servants, and your people, so that you will know there is none like me in all the earth. And then he says later in verse 16, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Have you considered, dear beloved Christian, perhaps the reason why you're going through this trial right now is so that God will actually make his name more famous by showing how he can sustain you and deliver you in the future. You serve as a witnessing tool for God. God's mighty hand also disciplines his children. 
He, he's a good shepherd. He has a staff to direct the sheep, but he also has a rod. With that rod, he'll fight off wolves and bears or thieves. But when that sheep goes wandering time and time again, the good shepherd actually breaks the leg of that lamb, and then he carries it until that leg heals. So that lamb learns, it is foolish and dangerous to wander off by myself. And when that leg heals, the lamb stays close to the shepherd. He realizes how good that shepherd is. We could consider Job. James 5, 11 tells us the point of his life. You have heard the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. What was that purpose, Job? Well, here it is. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know Job's story. God is being compassionate and merciful in Job's life. Yes. Job never got worse than he deserved. But God never let things go worse than he could sustain Job through. At the very end, what happened is Job quotes God. He says in chapter 42, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? It's what God has said to Job. And then Job confesses, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job didn't realize to what extent pride had crept up in his heart. At this moment, he realized, God, thank you for being gracious to me. Now I see you better, and that makes me more aware of my sin. And, and Job's rest of his life was better, not because things were restored, but because he walked more humbly before God. So the motivation is accept this humbling hand of God because it says there, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. To exalt means he'll lift you out of that trouble. When? When his timing is perfect. What does that look like? Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. But I had to wait patiently for the Lord. We don't know how long that was, but it was a long wait. And then, verse 3, he put a new song into my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and then here comes the witness. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord because I waited in that bog for a long time. It got people's attention and they saw me now lifted up at the proper time for them and for me, God acted. The proper time, it can feel like it's too late. But God is never early. He's never late. He's always on his perfect time. So when it feels like it's going on too long, the humble man prays like this. Father, please exalt me. Lift me out of this trouble. At your chosen time and not a moment earlier, lest I become complacent and proud. That's how we look to the Lord. Now comes the incredible motivation. What does it look like to be humble for God? Verse seven, casting all your cares on him. All your cares. There's no care too small and insignificant, no care too big. And casting means heaping it on, one after the other, a large load or a small load. Why? Because God can sustain them. Christians in Peter's day, they feared that because of their faith in Christ, they were going to suffer. I mean, just think about their worry, their discouragement, their despair. Maybe you feel that way today, questioning God, the pain, the suffering that you're going through, that you might go through. We all experience anxiety and fear. In fact, I heard this week that men have twice as many nightmares as women. They're being consumed in their sleep by fear of, of life. So what do you do? 
when that panic starts taking over and your, your throat constricts and you, you feel like your, your breathing isn't getting out and you're, you're losing consciousness, what do you do? When you're uncertain about the future, anxiety does this. It comes along and it starts pointing to all the what-ifs, all the potentials, and it slides next to you with its arm around you like a friend. It says, oh, look at all the worries that are out there for you. And, and that one in particular, if that happens, think about what else will happen. Oh, you know what the best thing for you to do right now is? You should worry. Because that's going to solve all your problems. And it's so smooth and friendly. We think, you know, anxiety, it's right. That is the most logical thing to do. Now, it doesn't ever play out like that, does it? But that's what's happening. Jesus spoke into this moment to interrupt anxiety. And he said in Matthew 6, 25, Therefore, I tell you, I, the Lord, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Well, thanks, Jesus. Uh, I won't then. <laughs> How many think that's, that's all I needed to hear today? There's more. He was talking about small things and big things. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. I take care of the flowers and the birds. God will take care of you. But he goes on in verse 34 of chapter 6. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. And here comes the guidance. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day. Sufficient for what? Each day is built for those own troubles. Today isn't built for tomorrow's troubles. That's where they remain. But all anxiety is based upon future events and how bad they can go. So here's what we're supposed to do. Don't pile tomorrow's troubles into today because they don't belong here. You have to look instead on the mercies that are all around us. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So you start to get worried about the future and that starts to grow and you can't even go to the future yet because it's out of reach and all the what-ifs are building. So how do you throw your burdens on the Lord? When you're saying, I don't think I can make it, you're actually looking at your cares. You've forgotten to look at, cast your cares on him. When a striker goes down the field and he shoots at the goal, he's not looking away to where the defender is. He's looking to where that ball is going to go. In the same way, Christian, look to the one on whom you're casting your cares. Don't look at your cares. Actually, you have been practicing casting your cares because all you're doing is, instead of mulling over your mind again and again on the trouble, you're thinking again and again on the Lord. You realize you've developed that muscle, now just transfer that ongoing worry about that thing to now thinking about him. And who is this? He cares for you. He has mercies for you today. And the thing about today's mercies is they expire at midnight. They're no good for tomorrow, so use them today. It's like the manna that Israel had in the wilderness. You could only use it for that day. If you try to store it up, it went rotten and it stank the next day. God's mercies are new every day, and he wants you to trust him. That's why it's a day-by-day -day thing. So casting all your cares on him is a call to trust him that there will be the mercies that you need for tomorrow's worry. So right now, focus on the Lord. Set your mind on him. In 2 Peter 1, 3, he tells us where do these resources come from to, to focus our mind on God. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things for all of life so that you can be godly. That means everything you need. And so where do you find these all things? He says in Second Peter 1, verse 4, by which he has granted to us, here it is, his precious and very great promises. 
Ooh, don't you love that? Precious and very great. Let me give you a couple of those precious and very great promises. Like Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Not just out of some, out of them all. You will come out of this. God will, at the proper time, lift you up. The three Hebrew young men, as they face that fiery furnace, they said, we don't know if God will deliver us, but we're going to stay true to God. They met their deliverer in fire, not before. The biggest enemy you have is not anxiety or panic attack. It's, it's unbelief. It lurks in us at all times. We need to pray like that father in Mark 9, 24. He said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. This is how you begin casting your cares on the Lord. You admit that you have no capability of doing this. Unbelief is a spiritual cancer that only the great physician, Jesus Christ, can heal. And he's happy to help you with that. He casts out no one. He says, I am struggling. Talk to the Lord. Remember Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, what do I do? I put my trust in you. When, not if, you are afraid. It will happen. The fear begins to rise in your heart that moment. Say, I need to trust in the Lord and cast this care on him. Pick up the double-edged promise of Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is a precious and very great promise indeed, isn't it? So pile your cares in the Lord, one after the other. Think about where each one is going like that striker. It's going on who? The one who cares for you. He cares for you like Isaiah 26.3 says. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then it calls all of us, trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Casting is the antidote for anxiety. Anxiety wants to keep you thinking about the problem, how great it is. God is saying, no, just turn your eyes above those hills and those mountains that you cannot climb. And remember the one who created even the heavens and the earth. Remember what God promises to those in Isaiah 40, verse 29. He gives power to the faint. He, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The anxious soul wants to faint. Instead, turn your eyes to Christ and you'll have enough strength for one more step and one more step. Rehearse the history of God's care in your life Remember it. Remember what he's done for all the saints in the Bible before you. Focus on that. Of course, you can hear what I'm saying and say, you know what? I think I'm going to go back to anxiety. We have a pretty good friendship. Is that really going to work out for you? Just, just beware because continuing to dwell in anxiety is actually an expression of pride. And you don't want God to oppose you. But I understand if anxiety is on you, you feel like I am helpless here. One of the first things you can do, reach out to a brother or sister next to you and say, I need help. I don't have the faith. Will you have faith for me? Will you pray for me? Humble yourself to ask for that strength and God will give you grace, favor. 
You need other Christians, so clothe yourself with humility toward them. You need spiritual shepherds, so be subject to your leaders. And if you want God's spiritual blessing, cast your cares on him. He invites it, and he will care for you. Incredible truths that will help us.